today, I'm going to try something completely different. For three years now, I've been hosting the Living Undeterred podcast, and I've had a great time, tremendous guests. I've learned a lot, yet there was something missing. It was something I felt a sense of obligation. And I realized recently that I wanted to do a solo podcast. Just the ability to turn on the recorder, to look in the camera, and to just talk. Um, me navigate through my mind, which with attention deficit can be entertaining, um, funny at times, confusing, frustrating, but it's who I am. I have my whole life enjoyed attention deficit as an ally, as a superpower in a sense. And growing up with a father as a physician, I think really helped. I got to see and have conversations about the medical profession, diagnosis, labels. And my dad never weighted me down with labels. He, as a physician, probably knew in his heart that I had this thing called ADHD or attention deficit disorder, but he never allowed me to use it as a crutch or as an excuse. And I admire my dad for that. And I wish in a sense, we did that more often with our kids. And today it's so easy to rush to judgment to find why our kids are acting a certain way and come up with a term for this human emotion for a lot of reasons. And I can talk about that in a minute. So here I am. I have no script. I have no agenda. I want to do this for 30 minutes. I don't know where my mind's going to take me, which makes it kind of fun and exciting at the same time, a little, little terrifying. So I'm at home in my studio in my basement where I record my podcasts. I do every, anywhere from two to five a week. And I will tell you, when I started off on this podcast journey, it was about me. It was about trying to become famous and have followers and sponsors and, you know, track the analytics and get all the five star. Oh, by the way, <laughs> if you can be so kind, I would love to have you go to Apple, Spotify, whatever all those places are and give us a five star rating. And I say that in all honesty, because unfortunately that's how this system works. And I know the game after three years, I've never really even asked people on my podcast to comment and uh, to rank it or give it five stars, but what the heck, let's do it today. If you can pause this right now, uh, go into however you go into it and um, give me a rating. You know, if, if, if you like this, then give me five stars. If you don't give me one, I, it's not going to stop me from doing what I do. And I, I don't have, an ego anymore that 
that I used to compete with. It, my ego has been quieted for a lot of reasons. And I could talk about that as we navigate through this, but I value your input. I value the comments. Uh, I get them daily it is quite humbling to have this platform to be able to talk about situations and occurrences in my life that not to, not to get sympathy and pity from people. That's that ship has sailed a long time ago, but I love compassion and empathy and support. You know, who doesn't, I'd be lying to you to tell you that doesn't mean a lot to me. Sorry, I had something pop up on my screen here. And I don't know how to turn off all this stuff. So if my phone and things go crazy, just bear with me. But so I'll, I'll be honored if you could say some kind words, share this, support it. Uh, depending on how this goes, I'll plan on doing a solo podcast down the road. But it's it's quite liberating to be able to just sit here and not have things in front of me to, you know, remind me of things, some great comment I want to give or some motivational speech. It's like, you know, I, that, that, that's just not who I am. Uh, and I, I really am a, a completely different human being than I, what I was before everything in my life, um, you know, turned upside down for lack of a better way to say it. But, you know, through death, death gave me an opportunity to become a better person, you know, not a bitter person, which would have been the easy thing for me to do. But I'm not going to lie, I became bitter early and through hard work daily, I've got myself in a really good place. But let's, let's don't turn this into, you know, a memoir about my life. I have a book if you're interested. Um, my book is available on all platforms. I also audio booked it as well. It's right here. For those of you that are watching, it's this one's for you, an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning. And I made a post yesterday about this that I, I wanted to just clarify. It's like when I wrote that book, it wasn't to become famous or to make money or to find sponsors or, you know, whatever things that the ego tells you to do. It was pretty clear I wanted to write a book to document our family what happened within our family with the, in the, in the grips of addiction and substance abuse and the mental health issues and challenges that we had, but that every family has, I mean, my, our story isn't unique other than it's just unique to me. Um, I think grief comparison is a really dangerous proposition today. And I think it's easy to do when you see people posting either, successes and you compare yourself to somebody who's just, you know, either through hard work or hard or luck, um, good things are coming their way and, and to be genuinely happy for people like that. I, I didn't used to be that way, to be honest with you. When I saw a post and somebody did something well and, or, you know, when my, my son was getting recruited to play college golf and I saw their kids committing, you know, it bothered me. And I was able to through a lot of work again, I'll talk about some of the coping mechanisms and skills that I've learned to reframe situations as opportunistic. And so when Ian was golfing, my middle son, Ian just graduated from the university of South Dakota, the division one golf scholarship. And I saw kids committing to colleges, big schools. And I, it, 
I'm like, my son's as good as these kids. Why isn't it happening? And it became this self-loathing and very destructive. And um, again, through a lot of work, and I'll talk about things that I do every day. I'll give you an example of what my day looks like. I learned to realize I'm happy for that that kid. I'm happy for their parents. I'm happy for that coach. I'm happy for that school. And if we could all learn to be a little more uh, humble and um, I think, it, I think it goes a long way. So my story is unique to me. I certainly would not want anyone to live through what I've lived through or we've lived through yet. This doesn't have to define me negatively. And I think that's a key thing. I, when I talk to kids, it's so easy for people to say, well, don't let this define you. Don't let this define you. I'm like, eh, no, let it define you. I'm okay with that. Just not negatively. Use adversity, chaos, trauma, pain. Perfectly fine to define you, but in a positive way. And how do you do that? Well, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still, I don't have the answers. And I think when I watch people that, you know, put these videos on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, and they're just, you know, motivational little quotes and little quibbits. And it's great. I like it and stuff, but you know, the average person out there isn't going to change their life on a 30 second motivational quote. It takes, I think, 66 days of consecutive work to change a behavior. So although I love the Ted talks and I like all the motivational stuff, that's the world we live in. We want little sound bites, little things we can watch and fire us up. And it, do, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That's a, a bandaid on a gaping wound. So let's, I want to talk about something that is close to my heart and that's mental wellness for kids. That, that's, that's where I've kind of gravitated to. And I'm, I'm not going to revisit the whole story. Everyone that follows our story knows, uh, our oldest son, Seth, died from fentanyl, and my wife passed away a few years back from uh, alcohol, which in reality was the grief of losing Seth. And I don't want to rehash all that. I think people that follow our story have a pretty good grasp of what happened. But you know, some of the things that people aren't aware of is that I was an alcoholic since I'd have to say high school, and I'm 57 years old today or now. And so, you know, I've been an alcoholic pretty much my whole life. My relationship with alcohol, alcohol was um, dysfunctional at best. I wasn't a drop over drunk, but I certainly, as I got older in my forties and fifties, I could feel it the next day. I hit it. Well, I think people that were in my close inner circle knew I had a drinking problem, but I ran an investment company. How can this guy be an alcoholic if he's a successful businessman? Well, <laughs> pretty easy. A lot of you watching this are alcoholics or into drugs or whatever affliction you have. And you can be successful by society's definition. So I was that guy. I also had a really rough run with gambling. And again, I'm completely out of the investment business now. I sold Premier Investments of Iowa, do some very capable people within our firm. And um, I had a probably at least a 20-year run with uh, a gambling addiction. In as much where... I would go to Las Vegas and I would play, I would have one table by myself and I would play $500 a hand blackjack, you know, a losing streak. You can go through lots of money quickly. 
And some days I won a lot of money. Some days I didn't. Now I did this at a time before I was married or early in my marriage where I, I made a lot of money and it was my release, you know, instead of doing drugs like cocaine, things like that, which fortunately I never did drugs my entire lifetime. Um, gambling was my, my hit, my serotonin, my dopamine. That's, that was my rush. And, you know, I was, a, I played two sports in college. I went to a junior college in Marshalltown, played, recruited to play basketball, but I played golf uh, as well. And, um, when that was all over, I, I still had the, those juices, you know, and in the investment business, you know, like the movie wall street and, you know, you see these movies and it's these young men that just think they got it all figured out and they're chasing the dream, you know, the, the illusion of happiness. And, um, I fell for that. I was, I was your white blooded American capitalist. Um, and, uh, as life often does, if not guaranteed to do at some point in your life, if you love long, live long enough, the math will certainly be against you that things bad happen. Sometimes it's a cancer diagnosis. You know, sometimes it's a car accident. Sometimes it's suicide. You know, in my case, it was drugs and alcohol. It took two people I, I care about immensely. And um, honor the dead, live for the living. Honor the dead, live for the living. That's something I think about often as I go through my day. So just a little backdrop and context about why I really wanted to do this is I think there's an opportunity for me to help people. And I feel compelled to do so. And I know there's lots of ways to help people. You can write a check, you, know, you can volunteer, but I just always felt I wasn't doing enough. And I have a feeling that I'm always going to be that way. I'm just not going to feel like I'm, I'm doing enough. I also want to let you know, I do cry a lot. So um, I think I'm a pretty emotional male. I didn't always used to be this way. I probably went 20 years in my life and never cried once, never told my dad I loved him, never told my mom, and she's not here for me to do so, but I love you, mom. And now I have this opportunity, and this is what I want to do the rest of my life until my last breath is to be in service of others. It sounds very corny maybe or wishful thinking, but that's what I want to do. And I think, I think there's something about meaning and purpose as lost in today's society. Let me, let me give you just kind of a little reason why I feel this way. When we were in our uh, early stages of designing our app, which I'll talk about some other time, not today too much, but it's a Gen Z mental wellness app. And I was doing a lot of research on Gen Z. And things that kept coming up was the lack of meaning and purpose. And so I, I, I have this phrase I, I like, and I start off all my talks, all my presentations with this phrase, purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. You have to say it a few times. You can write it down. And for years, that's been my opening statement of my presentations. So last summer we went around the country 95 days in an RV and every talk I start off on that, that phrase. 
and I have a lot of people, adults and a lot of kids come up and say, well, Jeff, you know, purpose is hard. You know, what, what is meaning and purpose? And, you know, does it just show up one day on your doorstep and <laughs> here I am? Or is it something you go out and you invent yourself? You fabricate it. You just kind of come up with your own purpose. And in my case, it came to me through death twice, you know, actually three times. My mom died right after my wife passed away. And so purpose was kind of, kind of revealed to me late in life through death. Now, for other people that they're still seeking meaning and purpose, how do you do it? Well, I came up with this. See, see if this works for you. I think for young adults, this could be something really valuable because they don't have the benefit of hindsight, hindsight. So it's tough for them to have wisdom when you're 17, you haven't lived long enough to really experience a lot. Um, and so it's hard to have purpose. I think purpose comes with age. Um, so take that phrase purpose becomes passion when it gets personal and play it backwards in your mind. So it's the first, there's three P's purpose. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. So think of the first P if you play it backwards, it's personal, right? So write down things that are personal to you. I'll give you an example. Maybe your grandpa died from Alzheimer's. Maybe your uh, sister has breast cancer. Maybe you had a cousin killed by a drunk driver. Maybe you witnessed animal abuse. You know, maybe you're a scuba diver like I am and you notice the oceans are white and the reefs have lost their color. Find something personal. We all, we all have it. And then make it a passion. And how do you do that? Well, immerse yourself in knowledge. Read books. Listen to podcasts. Interview people. Get on social media. Follow the biggest advocates in these areas. And I'll give you a recommendation, though. Don't fall into an echo chamber. Don't fall into a trap where all you listen to are people that validate your beliefs. I think that's so scary, so dangerous. It's one of the reasons why we have such a disconnection in our country is nobody has any common ground anymore. It's I'm right, you're wrong. There is a God, there isn't a God. Um, you know, everything from abortion to, to gun rights. There just seems to be so much polarization. But so if you are into this, finding your purpose and you are immersed in something that you're passionate about, something personal. Be careful. Like I said, just to always listen to people that validate your thoughts. You want to constantly be challenging authority, constantly be reframing how you look at life. And it's just part of learning. It's part of the, um, part of the evolution of yourself. You know, I'm 57. The last thing I want to do is think I have things figured out. I don't want anyone to tell me the way things are. I want to go figure it out myself. Uh, there's just something I've always been a kind of a natural skeptic. I've always been curious. Um, so let's go back to before I get too distracted. So purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Find something personal, make it your passion. And I think it becomes your purpose. It's not rocket science. I don't have any studies or reports that can validate this, but it's going with my heart. I'm looking at what I'm doing now in my life. And it started with something personal. I became an expert, or at least I think I'm an expert in these areas, an expert of 
lived experience. I'll give you that. Um, can I pass a test on the DSM and on all the psychiatric labels and the, the names of all the drugs given to kids to supposedly uh, correct them? No, I can't. So I'm not an expert in those areas. And, and, and experts are really stupid word anyway who who is really an expert in anything you know some are just more knowledgeable than others in certain areas but i don't know i don't know what an expert is but anyway so that's what i did i immersed myself into these things and um <coughs> excuse me and um became very involved in all things mental health. And so if you're struggling with purpose, maybe try that exercise, see how it goes. Send me a note, see what you think. Uh, I'd like to be able to try this with kids. I think that's the biggest thing Gen Z has going against them right now is a lack of meaning and purpose. Kids get up in the morning, their feet hit the ground and they're like, why am I doing this? I've got 50,000 in student debt. I wait tables. There's hungry people all over the world. Death and starvation seems to be everywhere. At least that's what I see on social media. The oceans are full of plastics. The reefs are dying. The air is polluted. Forest fires everywhere. Viruses and pathogens killing us, forcing us to wear masks and take vaccines. No wonder kids are frustrated and they blame us. They blame the adults and it doesn't really matter if they're right or wrong. That's their perception. Your perception becomes your reality over time. And so how do we write this ship, right? That's a great question. I, I don't have answers by the way. And if you're waiting for answers, I don't have them. I have more questions and I have answers and I like that mindset. I have more questions on religion than I do answers. I have more questions on morality than I do answers. I have more questions on how to stop drug overdoses than I do answers. I have more questions on sobriety than I do answers. I have more questions on well-being than I do answers. And I think that mindset leads me well to keep searching. I can't imagine telling somebody that I know something for sure. I think that's terrifying personally. I can have an opinion. My opinion's based on my experience. It's based on education. It's based on circumstances. You know, if I'm a different color and I'm born in a different part of the world, and I grew up a Catholic, well, I'm probably gonna be a religious person, right? I call that the, you know, the, the birth lottery. You know, some people are just, yeah, I'm a white male born in Iowa. Wow. In, in the United States on top of that. And just check all the boxes, you know, I mean, stereotypically I kind of hit the lottery, right? Well, me, what do I have to worry about? I have never been discriminated against. Um, anyway, I, I just think, I think, I think, going back to nature versus nurture, that whole conversation that I got into really heavy when I got into advocacy, especially with alcoholism and, um, and sobriety and the deep conversations I had with people about 
is, you know, alcohol, alcoholism, a disease, or it's a choice. And I used to fall for that. And it's a, it's a, it's a reframing problem. It's a, it's a, it's, we need to change the question. It's not, or it's, and it's nature and nurture. It's disease and choice. And quite honestly, who gives a crap what the answer is if you found a way to stop drinking? I've always just really got frustrated with alcoholics and I was one, so I'm not, I'm not being judgmental, um, where we play these narratives, you know, we play these games, you know, I, I'd made a decision as an alcoholic to quit drinking. It's no more complicated than that. December 24th, 2017, I was 52 years old. And I noticed my wife Prudence was doing very poorly. Both of us were really struggling after Seth died. And I looked in the mirror down in Florida. I remember this like it was yesterday. We had a condo down there that we had purchased to help support Ian's golf career. And uh, I looked in the mirror. I could just see my wife really, really aging and looking very poor health. And, um, you know, our relationship was starting, well, was, for all sense of purposes, it was over as a, as a married couple. And uh, the death of a child will either make your marriage stronger or it ends it. There's, there's never any way to get back to the way it was. It either gets better or it ends. In my case, it was, it was, it was ending and I knew it. She knew it. Um, but I looked in the mirror and I thought to myself, you know, it's time. It's that epiphany moment that I talk about in my book. I knew it and it was only important that I knew it. I didn't care about anybody else on the planet. I knew I had to quit. My body was telling me, my mind was telling me, my soul was telling me I had a problem. So whether I was an alcoholic or not, whether it's a disease, it's in my family for a hundred years, who gives a crap? I wanted to quit. I had this desire in me to quit. I knew it was going to be hard. I've been a drinker for 30 something years. And I was dealing with extreme suffering with the death of Seth and the death of my marriage for that matter. And I didn't look good. I was 190 pounds. Um, but I knew, I just, I just knew, you know, I knew it was time. And so I didn't drink that day. I didn't drink the next day. Now this Christmas will be six years. I, I'm not going to lie to you. It's been relatively easy for me. It's been relatively easy for me. I. I'm not that smart. So I was able to trick my brain to not play the narratives that everyone else plays. I just didn't want to be that struggling alcoholic posting on social media. Oh, I've been sober for a thousand days or whatever that is. That's, that's great. If it works for you, it just, it wasn't going to work for me because I'm just setting myself up that if I decided one day to have a drink, like I decided not to drink, I wasn't going to beat myself up. I don't need the social validation. The mirror is all I need. <laughs> the person looking back in the mirror is my validation and the pictures on my wall of my family over my shoulder here, my wife and my son. I mean, I jokingly say when I talk to people and I don't even like the word jokingly, but I like to say, I don't go to meetings. I don't go. I don't have a 12 step meeting mindset. I park my car at Cedar Memorial. It takes me 12 steps to get to the graveside of my son and my wife. That's it. <laughs> 
why does it have to be any more complicated? It works for me. That's all I can say. If you go to meetings and it works, then go to meetings. Um, the pathway to recovery is your own own it. And, uh, if, if, if going to meetings, isn't working, try something different. If abstinence isn't working and you're drinking six days a week, drink five, drink three. And so your best friend has been sober for 10 years and you can't stay sober for 10 hours. So what? I mean, quit beating yourself up. Win the day. I tell that to my youngest son who's, you know, at times had some tough times. He's 20. Came out as a gay man when he was 17. Lost his older brother, lost his mom. And I told him when we talk, I said, just win the day. Just don't worry about next week. Don't worry about next year. If you don't get through today, there won't be a next week. There won't be a next year. So I just remind all of you out there that are struggling and fighting this thing called life, this lived experience, you know, just win the day. And sometimes, sometimes it's win the hour. Um, I haven't talked about this a lot. Maybe I have, maybe I just tell myself I haven't, but a Christmas after my wife died was the darkest moment of my life. And my mom died as well. It, she died in June. My mom died in November. And that Christmas was the darkest moment of my life that, that weekend. And, uh, the boys were out, Roman and Ian weren't around and I was alone. And, um, my wife Prudence, before she died, I purchased her a house across the street from her mom and dad so she could work on getting better because I, I couldn't do anything with the drinking. And I had two other boys here, Roman and Ian, that I, I made the tough decision to get her a house and, um, you know, help her try to help herself. But at the end of the day, she, you know, she had to do this on her own. And I, I, you know, I, I was dad to two other boys. So I, I had to make sure they were not in an environment where there was no alcohol and I wasn't drinking at that, you know, so, and, um, all right, so this is a really good example of attention deficit because I completely forgot what I was going to say or why I brought that up. But I'm at peace with <laughs> doing this because it happens all day. So I may remember. I may not. Either way, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay sometimes forgetting where I'm going with stories. But... In the meantime, while I, I try to remember what I was talking about, let me go back to something I wanted to talk about today is what is mental illness? How do we define it? And who's we? Who, who, who are the ones inventing these labels and diagnosis? And why do we even have them in the first place? And I think it's this desire or this utility we have as humans to have answers to everything. I mean, when are you ever taught through college to not find the answers? I mean, we're not wired that way. 
everything we've done since the, the day we've been in education was about finding answers. And so with mental illness, we need answers. And what always has troubled me, and I'm a much more in tune with what I'm about to say than I was when I first came into this mental health advocacy, which would have been right after Seth died, was this inability to not know the answer. And, and let, me ref, let me kind of tell you where I'm going with this so you, so you know what I'm trying to say. I'm just going to use Seth as a good example. So when he was 16 or 15, he, his mind wandered. He had a hard time coloring inside the circle, you know, looked out the window during class and daydreamed. Um, thought about relationships. Thought about basketball. Thought about music. He wasn't thinking about calculus and algebra and all that stuff. And somehow somebody put it in my mind, I need to go see a doctor because his focus wasn't there. And, you know, in hindsight now, it's like, what 16 year old American boy isn't what I just explained. I was certainly that boy. I never made honor roll in high school one time. I was never a good student. I graduated college. I had to work hard. I always joked I was just as smart as the kids sitting next to me. Um, the reality was I, I, I just couldn't focus and, and I couldn't remember things like charts and graphs and the smart kids could just, they could read a book or look at a table and they could just sit down and regurgitate all of it and pass. I, I just, that wasn't me. I knew that early on, but I graduated high school, graduated college, got a finance degree. I think I was a 3.1 student. I had to study twice as hard as everybody else. And I still, to this day, feel like I always have to outwork everybody because I'm not naturally gifted in, in a lot of those areas, especially academia. But going back to Seth, you know, he didn't get good grades either. And he looked out the window and he daydreamed. But I was told that I need to go see a doctor. So I take him to see a doctor. And they give him Adderall. Now, when I was growing up, it was Ritalin. And they gave him Adderall. And I, you know, I'm not. If, you're, if anyone out here listening right now is on Adderall, just do what your doctor says. I, I'm, not, I'm a dad from Iowa. I'm not a doctor. So bear with me on this. But I have some experience from that lens. And so... Seth was given Adderall and I made a mistake and I didn't understand it because I was busy chasing the American dream, trying to get a bigger house, faster car, drive around, you know, fly around the world, um, impress people with my wealth and all these, you know, superficial things that I thought was who I am. And obviously now in hindsight, that's not who I am. And Adderall became, be, became the beginning of the end. And what I mean by that is he started, I gave him the pill bottle. I gave him the bottle. That was my mistake I was trying to get at. And in hindsight now, um, that was a mistake. I should have, I should have given him the dose that he needed to take. I just, I didn't know Adderall was just watered down methamphetamine basically. 
um, or watered down meth, I guess is what I like to say. And you just Google it and that's what it says. I didn't know that. I didn't, Adderall could have been cough syrup as far as I'm concerned. I, I was that naive. And you think with a dad, that would be a little bit better. A dad as a doctor, I'd be a little bit more educated on this, but I wasn't. And Seth um, started taking, you know, two. He found out he could sell it at school. I had a dad on the basketball team call me up one day and say, hey, I just want you to know my son came home pretty upset because Seth was selling his Adderall at school. And I confronted Seth and you can obviously understand how that conversation went. That was really where I, if I go back and reverse engineer this whole thing in my life and where it all started, I'd have to say it was the prescription Adderall. And maybe Adderall's right for your kid, but for Seth, it wasn't. Um, and then it went to alcohol and marijuana, drunk driving, breaking and entering, jail, cocaine, prison, heroin, fentanyl, death, all over a six, seven year time frame. So what have I learned? What could I have done differently? I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the outcome was already predetermined just by this, his choices, his lifestyle choices. Um, maybe I could have intervened a little bit different points during that trajectory. But I knew, I knew that this was coming. Um, I used to tell Seth all the time that, you know, two things are going to happen. You either be dead or you'll be in jail. And so Unfortunately, I was right on both fronts, but so in our, in our family situation, that's where it started. Uh, but there's no question he had underlying mental health issues, mental health challenges. And so I now have become what I consider a mental health advocate. I'm not an activist. Big difference. I have no anger in my heart. I was an angry fentanyl dad right after Seth died. I was that guy. I was angry. I wanted to change the laws, lock up every drug dealer and go to Mexico and eradicate fentanyl. And just, you know, I call myself an angry fentanyl dad. And I just realized that became very toxic, became an addiction in and of itself. So I made a pivot early into my advocacy, but about when I started writing my book that I wanted to be an advocate, not an activist. And we need activists. We do. We need people to do all that stuff. I get that. The supply side of the problem, we need that. And those people doing it, I'm proud of you. But it's just not for me. I don't have the bandwidth to sit there and be be angry every day. So I focus on the demand side. I focus on the kids. I focus on the inter intervening prior to the intervention. I focus on prevention. And that's where I've settled over time. And I'm very happy. I went this route to be honest with you. My life is, I'm at the best place I've ever been in my life. I'd say by far, but I really am. I work hard. Um, I'll end it this way. And I, I'm going to plan on doing a continuation of this because I really enjoy this, this, um, this context or this, um, the ability to do this. Um, so my day, I basically get up fairly early, maybe 5.30 or 6. And this is all probably in the last couple of years. This isn't something I always did. I like to meditate first thing in the morning, 20 minutes. I use the waking up app with Sam Harris. You know, 
I like Sam. I've been a big fan of his, um, his podcast, Making Sense. Uh, his books have all been great. Uh, I like his, I like his, um, his app for meditation. I do that before I do anything else. So I, I, I don't get on my phone, but I have to use my phone to get on the app. Um, after that, I go into my workout. So I have a elliptical and some weights and in my basement here and I come down and I put on my headphones and I listen to a mental health podcast, <laughs> uh, or any type of podcast that I could gain knowledge from. So I'm not looking to just kill time. I'm trying to become more educated, take advantage of this time. So I run anywhere from an hour to two hours on my elliptical and every 30 minutes I'll jump off and do weights and jump back on, run for 30, jump off, do weight. So I just do that for, you know, minimums an hour a day up to two hours a day. And I'd say five times a week, probably I do it. And, you know, and I go up and have a real healthy breakfast, fruit, maybe some egg whites or something, granola, whatever, yogurt. So by, you know, eight o'clock, you know, I've got all that done. And I'm still not on social media at that point. And then typically between eight and 10, I either set a podcast up or I do something where I'll make a post on social media. Um, and then eventually I'm either on someone's podcast or I'm having a podcast. I like to do a recording a couple of week. Uh, and then I have time for just, you know, I block off middle of the day, either to go down to my son's shoe store tribute kicks at the mall here. Uh, I work there. Um, I helped him set the business up. Um, and it's doing amazing. They, they give 5% of their profits to mental health organizations, which is so cool to be 22 years old with his buddy and, you know, doing good as they do good, you know, do good when you do good. It's a great way to find meaning and purpose in your life is to give back with no expectations. Um, and so, you know, then I, then I, sometimes I'll nap, you know, um, and, uh, clean up things that I'm behind on, which is a lot, uh, emails, and then at that point, I'll get on Facebook and, and LinkedIn and do my thing and whatever. But I'm not, I'm not on it very long. I try to keep it very, very short. Um, and lately, I've been spending a lot of time on our app, the Brighton app. Um, you know, we're coining as the nation's first one-page mental wellness plan for Gen Z. Uh, and I'll have a, a whole podcast on that. But today, I was just more of uh, an introduction podcast of kind of some of the things that are going through my head. But um and so that, and that's my day. I mean, I'm in bed probably, you know, nine o'clock. Um, I watch what I eat. I don't eat fried food. I, I don't dairy, things like that. It's not that I'm allergic to anything. I just, I want to live to be a hundred. I'm not going to do it by eating pizza and cheeseburgers and French fries. And maybe you can, I, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what I do. Um, so now at 57, I, think I'm in good health. You know, anything could happen. I'm aware of that. I'm prepared for that, but I focus on the things I can control. I can control every single thing I put in my mouth and I can control everything that comes out of my mouth. Uh, my words, my, my conversations I have, and I can control what I, mostly what I see, what I, what I listen to. So I don't watch any TV. I don't follow politics. <laughs> it drives people crazy, but I don't, I don't need to do that. I, I, I follow the people I respect and I get my information from those people. So yeah, I do vote all that stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I don't need to watch a debate to figure out myself who I like. Um, I've tried that. I just don't enjoy it. I get too, I get too upset. I get too angry and I, I just don't, 
I don't need toxicity in my life. So, well, that's a lot, about 40, almost 45 minutes, which is what I wanted to do today. Uh, I've enjoyed this format. I have just a lot of things I wanted to talk about today that I thought I would get to, but when you just go down a road, you don't know where the road's going to go and you go down another road and you don't know where that road's going to go. There's something, there's something fun about that. And I enjoy that. So I'm going to wrap it up with this. A couple of things I, I think are important when you're looking at your own life and ways to, to make yourself have a better lived experience. There's one quote. If you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, I'd really recommend it. It was one book that I just kind of read very quickly, put it down, read it again. It's all cut, it's all highlighted. But there was a there was a, a sentence he said that resonated with me. And I remember exactly where I was. Ian was in a golf tournament down at the Jordan Spieth uh, AJGA tournament down in Texas at the University of Texas's course. And I was at the pool because I, I get nervous when Ian played. So sometimes I would just skip events. And I was reading the book. And there was a quote that he said in the book where he said, suffering is my opportunity. And it was just one of those moments where I went, wow, that's, that's powerful. That's real powerful. And so I thought, well, I don't want to just copy it. So how could I rephrase it in incorporating, you know, what I went through in my life? And so my quote is this, I, I love this quote and I really think it can help you. Pain is unavoidable. Suffering is a choice. So the pain of losing Seth, the pain of losing my wife, the pain of being an alcoholic, you know, pain of being a compulsive gambler, all that for the most part was unavoidable, but the suffering that I identify with the pain, I believe for Jeff Johnston was a choice. And so as you go through your day and you have painful things and moments happen in your life, think about the suffering that you're tying to that event. Do you really have to suffer? Are you under an obligation for anyone to suffer? or suffering a choice. And if it is a choice and you're having a hard time choosing not to suffer, work harder. There are, there are ways to improve your life. You just need to, you need to do better. And it could be anything like eating less sugar, exercising more, getting some more sun. These are all things that are all over social media and people are charging you money to tell you these things. It's not that hard. You become what you eat. Your mind becomes what you read and watch. And so if you're not happy with your life and you're suffering for whatever reason, change the input, <laughs> change the data, you know, garbage in, garbage out. How can you think you're going to get better if you don't change anything? That's wishful thinking. So let me leave you with that. So I'm very grateful and honored to have any platform and to be doing what I do to live in honor of Seth and Prudence, my mom, and for anybody that I've lost in my life and, and, and live in inspiration for those people. But I want to really live for the people that are living. I mean, that's, that's what we're here for, to take care of each other. So with that, I love you all. I'm always here for you. If you have any questions, if you want to reach out to me, it's Jeff at livingundeterred.com. I'm on Facebook. Uh, we have, I think, four different Facebook accounts, Living Undeterred Project, Living Undeterred Brighton, and I have my personal one. And Brighton, by the way, is spelled B-R-I-G-H-T-N, B-R-I-G-H-T-N. 
and we're on the Apple, uh, we're on the app store and all that. So, um, if you're interested in downloading the app, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Anyway, I'm up against clock. I'm going to cut it off for today. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, like I said, love you all keep living undeterred and, um, keep brightening lives and remember purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Keep living undeterred. Thank you.